Well, Christmas carols uh, are chunky theologically, aren't they? You just got a lot of good theology weaved in those uh, verses. I appreciate those hymn writers of the past that uh, did such a good job of putting together those lyrics and those rhymes and those um, um, really um, poems is what they, they really are, the way they communicate the truth of God's word. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans, and we started looking at the conclusion of uh, this great letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Rome uh, last Sunday and didn't get through uh, with uh, the passage that we had uh, bid off and we're hoping to finish last week. We didn't do that, so we're going to finish it up this morning. And so I want to reread the text and just to get it back into our minds and our hearts. It's been a week now, and uh, but let's uh, reread Romans 15, starting in verse 15, and we'll just read to the end of the chapter. For those of you that were here last week, you'll remember we were able to get through verses 15 through 21, and uh, we're going to be focusing this, um, this morning on 22 to 33, but let's read the whole thing. Verse 15, but I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I, will not, for, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ." And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. And now the section we're going to look at this morning. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints." For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Father, again, we're so thankful for some time Uh, every week to uh, look into your word together and to um, seek to understand what is here and to apply it to our lives. And this sounds very different uh, than the rest of uh, the book of Romans. It's not very theological at all. It's more personal. It's more practical. And I pray that uh, we would would have ears to hear this morning, hearts to, to respond and to be doers of your word, not just hearers. And so, I pray your spirit would be working amongst us even as we uh, go through these verses together and that you would change us and conform us more to the image of Christ, we pray in his name, amen. I have a question for you this morning. What is your mission in life? What is your mission in life? Some of you may have done this uh, before. Some of you may have not done this. It's not as common, I think, for most people, but uh, to come up with a personal mission statement or a personal vision statement. If you were to do that, what would it sound like? 
What would it include? A mission statement or a vision statement expresses our ambitions, our aims. It, it, it simply and clearly states our passions, our purposes, our goals. When we first started Lakeside over 20 years ago, we wanted to come up with a mission statement that would simply and clearly define who we are and, and what God wanted us to be and do and, and, and ultimately to keep us focused on who God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. And so our mission statement is simply this, that we exist to glorify God by proclaiming and living his word so people come to know Jesus Christ and grow to become like him. Hopefully that's not unfamiliar to you, that, that you know that. We put it in a lot of different places to remind you. We have it on the wall as you walk in the front door of our church. That's the first thing you see. And we have it on our homepage, on our websites, the first thing you see. And uh, when we used to have a bulletin, it was on the back of the bulletin, so you would see it every week. And that was all very intentional, very deliberate. Why? Because we want to remember why we're here and not just get into the rut of just going through the motions and coming to church every Sunday and checking it off and mailing it in, whatever, uh, however you view that, right? But why, why are we here? We exist to glorify God by proclaiming and living the truth of his word so that people come to know Jesus Christ and grow to become like him. There's three very important factors or features of that mission statement. One is that we're God-centered rather than man-centered. Right? We're a God-centered church, not a man-centered church. In other words, we're here to glorify God, not to please people. Uh, we're not only God-centered, we're Bible-based, that we're proclaiming and living the truth of his word. So we're a God-centered, Bible-based church, but we're also a Christ-focused church in that we want people to come to know Jesus Christ and grow to become like him. He is the goal. He is the, the, what we're shooting for, what we're aiming for. And so I hope you appreciate that, that you're a part of a God-centered, not a man-centered, a Bible-based, not just uh, whatever you know, the, 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 the political scene is or the opinions of the pastor and the stories and jokes of whatever uh, that he wants to share any given Sunday, but it's a Bible-based church, and that it's Christ-focused. That is who we're focused on. It's the cross. Uh, we're cross-centered in that regard. One of the reasons why we chose this as the mission statement for our church is because it actually serves as a mission statement for every faithful follower of Christ. Every Christian could adopt this as their personal mission statement. Is that true? I mean, you're like, I never thought about a personal mission statement, but if I was to come up with one, this sounds kind of what it should be like, that I exist, I exist to glorify God by proclaiming and living the truth of his word so that people around me come to know Jesus Christ and grow to become like him. That fits, doesn't it? And so it's, that's just not the mission statement of our church. That's, I think, the mission statement of every Christian. That was Paul's personal mission statement we learned last week that from the moment that we meet Paul, the moment he shows up in Scripture, we see him as a man on a mission. And unfortunately and sadly, as an unbeliever, his mission was to exterminate Christians and to destroy the church. But after his personal encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, his new mission was to proclaim and promote the faith which he formerly sought to destroy. And how ironic that the most zealous persecutor and destroyer of the church became the most zealous defender and builder of the church. Initially, Paul's ambition, his aim was to squash the spread of the gospel and to keep people from becoming a Christian. But after his conversion, his ambition and aim became to share the gospel with as many people as possible and help people become Christians. And here in this last section of chapter 15... 
He shared his ambitions, his aims as a minister of the gospel, and we get a glimpse into his heart, this heart of a man whose entire life was devoted to spreading the gospel and to building the church. And again, this is where we're reminded that while Romans reads like a theological dissertation, it actually was just a missionary support letter. And Paul's goal in writing this letter was to present the gospel to these people, not so they could get saved, they were already saved, but so that they would share his passion for the gospel and partner with him to bring the gospel to the unsaved, unreached people in Spain. In other words, if you lived in Rome, your, your mission field, if you will, was right, the next, part, the, the next place for the gospel to go was the neighboring country of Spain. And so he was simply sharing his heart here for the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and again, we said this last week, on the surface, it, it appears that Paul's just explaining um, the reason why he wrote the letter, sharing his personal plans to come and see them, concludes with some prayer requests here. But these verses reveal his ambitions, his, his passions, his priorities, his purposes as a minister of the gospel. And so what we have here is a window into the heart of Paul who apart from Christ himself, there was no one in the history of the church that had a more zealous heart for reaching lost people with the gospel. That's what his life revolved around. And so what we have here are really features, is what I decided to call it, features of a fervent, faithful ministry of the gospel. Verses 15 to 33 We've got three features of a fervent, faithful ministry of the gospel. And last week, we looked at Paul's perspectives, how he, first of all, saw himself as a priest. He was called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but he viewed that role as if he was an Old Testament priest performing a sacred service with great devotion and great dedication. And, and the role of a priest in the Old Testament was to offer up sacrifices to God that were brought by sinners to atone for their sin. Paul, on the other hand, saw his role as offering up sinners to God as a sweet-smelling aroma to him. And so sharing the gospel and leading others to Christ was an act of worship for Paul. He also viewed himself as a power tool, again, for a lack of a, a better P word I was looking for there, right? Paul looked back over his 20 years uh, that he had been an apostle, and he, had, he was amazed at what God had done through him. And yet he never bragged about his accomplishments. He never said, hey, you know, I led this many people to Christ and I planted this many churches. You wouldn't hear that coming out of the, the mouth of Paul. He knew he was simply a tool in God's hands to accomplish God's purposes. And so he didn't try to take credit for anything good that came from his life and ministry. And God used his messages and and, and, and the miracles that he performed to bring many people to Christ. And, and, and Paul knew that it was God who was empowering him every step of his three missionary journeys and was the one who enabled the gospel to travel from Jerusalem all the way to what we know today as modern-day Albania, Illyricum. So he saw himself as a priest, a, a power tool, and then finally we saw last week that he saw himself as a, a pioneer. Verse 20, thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on, any, uh, on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. So Paul had this pioneering spirit and had a burden to go where no man had ever gone before and, and to share the gospel with people who had never heard it before. And we need to realize that even though 2,000 years have passed since Paul was sharing the gospel, there are still people on this planet who have never heard the gospel. There, there are people who live here in Montgomery, Texas, who have never heard the gospel. I know that's hard to fathom uh, because this is essentially part of the Bible belt, right? And it's like, it seems like everybody grew up in church or is associated with church in some way, shape, or form. But there are people who, uh, in fact, recently, uh, I heard of a, an individual who was sharing the gospel uh, with someone. They said, hey, have you, have you ever heard the gospel? This is somebody that grew up here. Have you ever heard the gospel? And, and they said, well, I've heard the word, but I, 
I don't know what it means. And, and so they had a wonderful opportunity just to say, well, let me tell you what it means. Uh, how many people are like that out there? And uh, that, that we could be used of the Lord, right, to share with them the truth of the gospel. Well, we, we need to share Paul's perspective as a, as a priest, as a power tool, as a, as a pioneer who longed to see unsaved people come to Christ. But this morning, let's move on from his perspectives to his plans, Paul's plans. And Paul, Paul had some plans. Again, he was a man on a mission, and he had plans. And, and that's part of, uh, you know, when you're a person on a mission, right, you, you make plans, you have a vision, and you go for it. And we're going to see that all of his plans were ultimately under the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. And he knew that, that, that we make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. But notice in verses 22 through 29, Paul planned three things. He planned to visit Rome. Uh, number two, he planned to visit Jerusalem. And number three, he planned to visit Spain. Notice First of all, his visit to Rome, verse 22. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. For this reason, what reason? Well, what did he just get done talking about? The fact that he aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named. In other words, it was Paul's pioneering perspective that had kept him from coming to a place where the gospel had already been preached and churches had already been planted. Rome, in a sense, had already been reached. He knew that a foundation had already, already been established in Rome, and yet, at the same time, he continued to find new areas in Asia Minor and Greece where people hadn't heard the gospel. But he had come to the conclusion now that a foundation had been laid in those regions as well. And that doesn't mean that Paul had traveled to every city in Asia Minor and Greece nor had he witnessed every person, but in his mind, enough solid churches had been planted in strategic locations so that everyone who lived in those areas was within the sound of the gospel and the work of evangelizing that region could be completed through those local churches. And he could move on. Verse 23, but now with no further place for me in these regions, in other words, they've been reached essentially, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Well, we learned at the very beginning of this letter that Paul had always had a desire to visit the believers in Rome. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, he was talking about how he was always praying for them. He was on their prayer, he was on his prayer, they were on his prayer list. He says, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. And so Paul had always wanted to go there. Well, now he was coming. And, and his main goal in coming there was to rally support for his latest evangelistic endeavor, which was to reach Spain with the gospel. And so he was appealing to them here to partner with him in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that word there, uh, to be helped on my way there by you, um, is, is a, a word that is used a, a number of other times in the New Testament in reference to supporting missions, uh, and the spread of the gospel. For example, Titus chapter 3, uh, verse 13, Paul says this, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. So he was saying, hey, Titus, when these guys come through town, they're on a mission, um, they're, they're spreading the gospel, and so help them. Send them on their way. Make sure they don't lack anything. And then probably a more familiar place is 3 John 3 John chapter 5, 
John says this, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. And this is where we get the concept, uh, concept of, of, of supporting missionaries, right? People that are uh, devoted, have devoted themselves to full-time mission work, uh, spreading the gospel, that we want to support them because they went out for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ and they haven't accepted money from anybody and they're dependent on the church. Uh, they're dependent on believers, fellow Christians to support uh, their work. And so that's what Paul was saying is, hey, I'm coming to you guys, but it's not just to come and hang out and settle down. Uh, no, I'm on my way. You're, you're, you're just a, a kind of a, a, a stepping stone to get to where I'm really headed, which is Spain. But notice he immediately um, makes a right turn, if you will, uh, in verse 25. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem. And by the way, if you look on the map, and you can do that, if you want to look in the back of your Bible, there's some maps back there, especially the one that says Paul's missionary journeys. It's just interesting. Paul was in Corinth at the time, which was in Achaia. Um, and so he's basically halfway, maybe three quarters of the way to Rome. In other words, he would just have to jump on a, a boat and, and head across the the, the sea to get to Rome, and uh, he'd be there. But he said, no, I'm going to Jerusalem first. Now, again, you look at that, he's going in the exact opposite direction. He's like backtracking all the way back to where the gospel began in Jerusalem. Now, if, you know, in our day and age, for somebody to say, yeah, I'm, I'm in Corinth, I'm in, I'm in Greece right now, and I'm going to go to Israel, and then I'm going to go over to Rome. And they're talking about jumping on an airplane and flying a, a couple hours here and then a couple hours back here, no big deal. But Paul is walking, okay? And we're talking thousands of miles that he's going to be backtracking all the way to Jerusalem and then he has to go all the way to Rome. I mean, we're talking about months of travel. Well, why was he going? Notice he says, for this reason, oh, excuse me, uh, verse um, 25, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Paul was referring here to that special offering that he had received from uh, the Gentile churches uh, on the Grecian peninsula, including Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth, where he was writing from. You may remember uh, this we, we, whenever we talk about giving. Uh, you know, this is, it seems like what we always go to as our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Paul said, now concerning the collection, that's all it's referred to as the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Paul had been going around to the various churches that he had planted and was uh, taking a collection for the saints uh, in Jerusalem. And the most extensive uh, instruction about this collection is in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, those two chapters devoted to really what does biblical giving look like now. It's not the Old Testament tithing, but it's the, it's the idea of grace giving. And so... Um, the Jewish believers in, in Jerusalem were the ones responsible for launching the gospel into these areas, into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. In fact, the reason why the gospel got to Philippi and Thessalonica and to Corinth was because of the faithful Jewish saints who had launched a mission endeavor from Jerusalem, just like God had commanded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in, in what? And, you know, he said, remain on and the Holy Spirit will come, right? And uh, he will uh, empower you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. And so through their spirit-empowered mission, the gospel had reached these churches. And so they were the ones responsible for the fact that these people had come to know Christ. And yet, if you remember when the church started back in Jerusalem, 
They were hosting and providing for all the initial converts to, who, who came from all over the world. They were there in Jerusalem. They all got saved on the day of Pentecost, 3,000, right? That's a church plant. Start with 3,000 people the first Sunday. And so where were these people going to live? What were they going to eat? Well, the believers in Jerusalem took them into their homes. And, uh, and so it probably had drained their resources. Uh, they probably were also feeling a financial squeeze due to the persecution, Right, because there was Paul was the one who started that lockdown there in Jerusalem and started persecuting Christians. And I think on top of that all, history records that they were experiencing a famine at the time. And so Paul had gone around appealing to the Gentile believers in Greece to donate money to help their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ with with the hope that it would bring the Jews and Gentiles together and, and cement their union in the new body called the church. Notice how he describes this in verse 27. He says, yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Again, we talked about this when we were studying Romans 9, 10, and 11, that we as Gentiles, Gentile believers, that is, we're, we're debtors to the Jews. We're, we're, the, we're the dogs, uh, you know, getting the crumbs that have fallen off the table, if it, as, as it were. And it was through the Jews that the Gentiles have been given the word of God, they've been given the son of God. We, we saw this uh, on a number of uh, occasions uh, throughout our study of of Romans, Romans chapter three, verse two. First of all, it says that the, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the scriptures. Romans 15, four, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we have the word of God as a result of the Jews. We also have the son of God, the Messiah, Romans chapter 4, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, we are uh, part of the inheritance of Abraham, this promise that there was going to be a, 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 a Messiah who was going to come to save the Jews and not just save the Jews, but to also save the Gentiles. Chapter 9 uh, of Romans, verse 4 the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Okay, we are participants in that, those promises. Chapter 11, verse 18, don't be arrogant toward the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. In other words, you wouldn't be here, Gentile believer, if it wasn't for the Jews. So by faith, the Gentiles have been grafted into all the benefits and blessings of the Jews. That's the point of Romans 9, 10, and 11. So it was only natural for them to want to return the favor by supporting them financially. And this would not only be a blessing to the Jewish believers, but it would also prove the genuineness of the Gentile salvation and confirm their inclusion into the body of Christ. Paul essentially said that to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as he wrapped up his instruction on, on giving or, or uh, participating in this contribution, this relief effort. He said in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. In other words, they will glorify God for your obedience. They'll be convinced that you're truly saved, that you're one of them, that you're part of the body of Christ, even though it's hard for you to fathom as a Jewish Christian. What? Gentiles? Now we're part of this one big thing? Yeah. I think this is a good place for us to be reminded how important it is that we are always thankful for those 
who led us to Christ or who've helped us grow in Christ and that we seek to honor them in, in whatever way we can. Who are you indebted to for being a Christian? Think about that. Think back in your life. Who are you indebted to for the fact that you're a Christian sitting here today with a Bible on your lap, with a hunger for his word, a desire to grow to become more like Christ? Who was it that God used to get you here this morning? Who shared the gospel with you? Who led you to Christ? Who, is di- who's, who discipled you? How have you expressed your gratitude and appreciation to them? How have you loved them? How have you supported them in some way? I remember growing up, my mom always referring to this lady that lived up the street, up on the hill. And uh, it was through this Bible study that she led that my mom was invited to where she came to know Christ as her Savior. And uh, I just remember hearing about that woman and how she spoke of her with such great love and appreciation and respect for many, many years. Even after, sadly, she had ended up getting a divorce from her husband and it didn't end well for them spiritually, but my mom was always uh, spoke with her with such honor and respect and appreciation because if it hadn't been for her, she wouldn't have been a Christian. We should think about those people in our lives. For some of you young people, it's your mom and dad. And what an incentive to want to honor mom and dad and to, to obey mom and dad, that they were the ones that God used to bring you to saving faith in Christ. It was through their example. It was through their testimonies, through them sharing the gospel with you, them bringing you to church where you could hear the truth, show love, show appreciation, say thank you to them for that. Well, Jerusalem wasn't Paul's end game. That was just kind of where he was going on the way, even though it was out of the way, ultimately to Spain. Notice verse 28. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So again, what is Paul saying? Hey, once I drop off the offering there in Jerusalem, it's my plan to go to Spain. And and by the way, we don't know for sure whether or not he ever made it to Spain. Church tradition says he did, but you can't always trust church tradition. Nowhere in Scripture is it clear that uh, he made it there. He was released from uh, prison for a, a season, and it sounds like he went back around to some of the churches that we know that for sure, that he went back around to some of the churches that he had planted initially, but there's nothing specific in Scripture that says that he, he was in Spain. Again, this is a good reminder that we need to have plans. We need to have dreams, right? We need to have visions about what we need to do or how we can minister to lost people. This is, this is Paul's plans, right? We, we saw his perspectives. We're talking about his plans now. And so the question is, do you have plans? Do you have dreams? Do you have goals about where you want to go and what you want to do to minister to unsaved people? And you may not have to go very far. They may be sleeping in the bed next to you every night. It may be an unsaved spouse. They could be living down the hall, right? They, they could be the, the, your children, your neighbors across the street, across the backyard, your coworkers, the, the people you go to school with. Do you have any strategic plans? I think we all should be thinking and strategizing And obviously submitting all those plans and strategies to God for his approval, his alteration according to his will. Which brings us to the the last feature here of of a fervent, faithful ministry, and that is Paul's prayers. Paul's prayers here in, in verse 30 through 33. 
Notice he says, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So if you love the Spirit, if you love the Holy Spirit, who is a, one of the members of the Trinity, right? Um, if you love Christ, if you love the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers for me. That word strive is the operative word here. It literally means to agonize. It's the word agonizomai in the Greek, which we get our word agonize. And so he's saying, agonize in prayer for me. Put your whole heart and soul into it like a wrestler trying to win a match or a runner trying to, to, to win a race. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, talks about Epaphras, who was one of Paul's associates. And he's described in these terms. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, send you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Does that describe your prayer life? Always? In other words, it's happening a, a lot. You're just always in a spirit of prayer and that it's a, it's a labor, it's, it's work and you're doing, it, you're doing it earnestly, zealously. You're agonizing in prayer. You're striving in prayer. I, I will never forget reading the biography of, of, uh, of David Brainerd, the missionary to the American Indians over in uh, the East Coast in New England and Pennsylvania and those areas, New York, uh, and and it, it, it was he described how he would go out in the middle of the winter in the snow in the woods and pray. He'd get down on his knees and he'd pray for the souls of the Indians that they would get saved. And, it, it, and, he, and he described how he would come back into his little cabin sweating because he had prayed so fervently. I mean, you think about that in the dead of winter in the snow, and you got perspiration because you've been praying that fervently. That's the sense of this pray for me, strive with me in your prayers. And again, this is not anything new for Paul. If you know Paul and his letters, he was regularly soliciting prayer uh, for himself and, and his ministry. Why? Because he was aware of how weak he was and how, how inadequate he was and how desperately he needed God's help. And so we've gotten familiar with Paul requesting prayer. For example, at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of a mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, pray at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So he prayed, he said, pray that I would be bold, pray that I would be clear. Pray that God would open up opportunities for the gospel. First Thessalonians 5.25, brethren, pray for us. Second Thessalonians 3 Verse 1, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. Even in Philemon, Philemon 22, at the same time also prepare me lodging for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. So Paul was always asking for prayer. Well, he was asking the Romans to pray for him, the Roman Christians, and he listed three specific prayer requests. The first one was for safety. Notice verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together me in your prayers to God for me. And here it is, number one, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. And he was referring to the many unbelieving Jews 
living in Jerusalem who rejected the gospel, who had considered Paul a traitor, and they were just waiting for him to come back home, if you will, so they could arrest him and kill him. And Paul was aware that that was um, likely to happen. In Acts chapter 20, in fact, the, the, the prophet Agabus prophesied that this would happen. Verse 11, this is Acts 21, 11, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when he had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. In other words, hey, you know what's going to happen if you go there, Paul. Don't go. You're, you're, you're better off going to Rome and then going on to Spain. Let somebody else take the offering. And Paul says, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. So Paul was asking them to pray for safety. Number two, he asked them to pray for successful service. Notice he says, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Again, Paul desired that the believing Jews in Jerusalem would graciously accept the offering from the Gentile believers. And there was a a chance that they might not. They're like, that's from Gentiles? No thanks. The dogs, the Gentile dogs, we don't want their money. So he was hopeful and he asked for prayer that they would realize that they're no longer dogs, but they're fellow members of the body of Christ and that they're no longer, they would no longer be suspicious of these Gentile converts. There was lots of confusion and questions about what's up with this Gentiles getting saved and, and, and getting baptized. They, they weren't sure about all that. They weren't comfortable with it at first. And so he was praying that, that, that he would be successful there and his ministry would be accepted and that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he was the guy that if anyone's going to explain to the Jewish Christians, this is what God's will is, like he described in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's referring to Gentiles there. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. (coughs) Excuse me. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. That was his goal. That was his passion. He wanted to see that successfully understood, communicated, and received. So he prays for successful service. And finally, he prays for spiritual peace and rest. Spiritual peace and rest. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. So Paul asked them to to pray that his trip to Rome would be a joyful one and one in which he would find rest and refreshment in their fellowship. And that was how Paul often referred to uh, his time with with, uh, fellow believers and and co-laborers in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 16, 17, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they have supplied what was lacking on my part, or excuse me, on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. And then 2 Corinthians seven thirteen, I love this, um, talking about Titus. For this reason, we have been comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So Paul asks for refreshing there. But notice the little phrase in verse 32, don't miss this, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. 
This is another way of saying, Lord willing, right? James chapter four. Don't say, hey, today or tomorrow, we're gonna do this, we're gonna go here, we're gonna do this. He says, you don't know what, life you're, what your life will be like tomorrow. You're, you're being arrogant, you're being boastful. You're being presumptuous. Instead, what you should say is, if the Lord wills, we'll do such and such and such. And so this was his way of practicing that, Lord willing. And again, this is just a great reminder that the purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to ours, but rather to align our will to his. In other words, when you pray, what is your goal? Is it to get what you want? Or is it to get what God wants? Paul mentioned this. We already read it in the first chapter of Romans. That he was hoping uh, to come to them, verse 10, by the will of God. So again, we, we need to always pray according to God's will. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. What's the next line? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then how about First, uh, First John 5.14, talking about prayer. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so we need to follow the example of Jesus when he was in the garden, uh, when he said, Father, not my will, but what? Yours be done. So Paul knew that, that all of his plans were subject to God's redirection and revision. Somebody said it this way, that, that we need to make all of our plans in pencil, knowing that God holds the eraser. Um, and that's true. Does God always answer prayer? Always. He always answers prayer. It just may not be the answer you were hoping for. It may not be what you asked for, but he answered it. And the answer might be no. And so God did answer Paul's prayers here that, that he was requesting. He, he, God did answer these prayer requests, but not exactly how he had requested or hoped. Again, Proverbs 16.9, man makes his plans, but the Lord, what? Directs his steps. So his ministry was a success as he had asked for prayer for. The financial gift was well received and it was greatly appreciated by, by the Jewish believers. We see that in Acts 21. However, he was attacked by the, the Jewish unbelievers and uh, by the grace of God, he was rescued by the Roman soldiers and after an arduous journey involving a shipwreck and a snake bite and many other things, he did finally make it to Rome, but as a prisoner in chains. <clears throat> he was under house arrest. So he didn't come to Rome. He didn't make it to Rome. He did make it to Rome. He just didn't make it there the way he was hoping. He came in chains. And then notice, after asking for, for prayer, he closed with a prayer of his own here. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. If you remember, this is the third benediction in this chapter. It's like, Paul, he, just, he, he keeps making you think he's going to end, and he doesn't. Uh, verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That'd be a great way to end. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's another good way to end, right? And here's a third good way to end. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now here he actually says amen. You're like, okay, End of letter. Well, no, we have one more chapter here. But when he says, now the God of peace be with you all, Paul wasn't just praying that his readers would experience peaceful feelings, inner feelings, warm, fuzzy feelings of peace. I think what he was praying for here was, was the Jewish believers and, and Gentile believers experiencing true peace. Peace and unity and harmony with one another. 
Again, he just got done correcting them in chapters 14 and 15 for judging one another and being condescending towards one another when it came to gray areas and weaker and, 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 and stronger brothers and, and, and matters of conscience and secondary things like that. And so he was praying that, that the God of peace would be with all of them, that they would experience the peace that God intended for them as believers in Christ. Another good question we can ask ourselves at this point in regards to Paul's prayers is, is do you believe in the power of prayer like Paul did? I mean, you don't ask people to pray for you unless you really believe in the power of prayer. And, and by the way, when people ask you to pray for them, you don't actually pray unless you actually believe in the power of prayer. I mean, how many times has somebody said, hey, pray for me, and you're like, yeah, I'll pray for you. And you never do. You just kind of say the spiritual thing. That's the spiritual thing to say. Oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. But then you never take a moment and just pause and, and, and shoot up a prayer. Even if it's a quick prayer, you bring that matter before the Lord just right then and there. That's why sometimes if somebody comes to me on a Sunday, for, for example, and says, hey, would you, Pastor, would you pray for me about this? I'll say, yeah, let's, let, let, I sure will. Let me do it right now. Because I don't want to be a hypocrite and say, hey, I'll pray for you, and then I never do. Either I forget or I just whatever. Prayer, according to this passage, plays a vital role in the gospel ministry and in in missions. It's it's really one of the simplest ways that, that you can share in the struggle and partner in the spread of the gospel. Obviously, we can give, right? We give to missions, some of us, uh, God has called to go overseas. But all of us can pray. All of us can pray. And you may remember um, the story about William Carey, who was, who was considered the father of modern missions. And he was in England, and at the time, in his generation, the church was really cold and, and, and uh, apathetic towards the lost, and, and, and they were, uh, if, if perhaps you could use this term, they were hyper-Calvinists. They were, they were so into Calvinism that, and, and the God's sovereignty and salvation, they thought, well, if God's going to save people, he doesn't need us to do it. And William Carey said, no, 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 no. Listen, we have to also understand man's responsibility. And yes, we know God is sovereign in salvation, but he uses us, that we are the means through which he saves people. And so we need to be faithful as church members to, to go and, and reach the unreached people groups around the world. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? And so he and another friend, Andrew Fuller, uh, started a, a missions organization, the Baptist Missionary Society, to stir up the church in England to send missionaries to places like India and China. And William Carey had a burden for India, and this is what he said. He says, India is like a dark pit, but I will go down. I will venture down into that pit if you hold the ropes. I love that expression. If you hold the ropes. I'll go down. I'll go down there if you hold the ropes. Listen, not all of us can go down in that pit, but whoever goes down, they can't get down there, and they can't get back up out of there unless they got people back home holding the ropes, right? Right? letting them down there and pulling them back up. And we do that through our prayers. I'm using my mama's illustrations this morning for some reason, but it all converged because if you ever, during the summer months when we have have summer missions uh, trips out on the field, whether it's in Honduras or Uganda or wherever we might be sending a short-term team, you see my mom for those that week or two and she's got a rope tied around her wrist. She has a rope. She pulls out, pulls out of the drawer every summer during summer missions teams, short term. She wraps it around her, ties it on her wrist to remember, right? That's a reminder to pray for those people from our church who are on short term missions teams. Back this this morning, I got a text from my mom. First thing she said was holding the ropes for you today. Praying for her son who was gonna, she knew I was gonna preach and that was the way she thinks about it. What is she doing? Praying for the pastor, the preacher on Sunday morning. She's holding the ropes. So that's what we're doing. Whenever we're praying for, for anyway, anybody, we're kind of holding the ropes there. 
I came across a really good article written by the International Missions Board known as IMB, which is the, the mission board of the Southern Baptist Convention. Some of you may be familiar with like the Lottie Moon offering and things like that, the annual missions um, offering that, that Southern Baptist Church give to. But uh, this is what it said. And this is so good. And I thought it was good for us to hear as a church. He said, while the, uh, whoever wrote this article said, while the Great Commission is a command for all Christians, not every believer is called to move to another land to serve as a cross-cultural missionary, but many are. And these missionaries need pastors back home who, like Fuller with Carey, will hold the ropes for them as they spread the good news among unreached and undeserved people groups. And again, this article is more targeting pastors like myself. What does it look like for a pastor to hold the ropes? Well, I would suggest that at least means, it at least means embracing two overlapping priorities. First, rope holders cultivate a great commission culture in their churches. They preach and teach about God's global vision and their church's part in God's mission. They uh, pray fervently and regularly for missionaries. And they lead their churches to give generously, even sacrificially to missions. They encourage and equip members to be evangelistic and committed to disciple making here, there, and everywhere. Their churches provide members with short-term missions trip opportunities when possible with missionaries who have been sent out from the church or at least known to the church. So that's good. I think that kind of describes what's happened here. Wouldn't you agree? Hopefully we're being that kind of uh, rope-holding culture Secondly, rope holders lead their churches to care for the spiritual lives of missionaries. Members regularly communicate with missionaries through mail, Skype, phone calls, and other means. In addition to short-term missions teams, pastors and other leaders visit missionaries periodically to pray with them, bring them supplies and treats, and just spend time encouraging them as brothers and sisters in Christ. I remember hearing of, a, of, a, of another church that supports one of the missionaries that we support. And uh, the pastor and one of the elders just took a trip to that country. And uh, for no other reason than to take that couple to a nice, take them on a nice vacation to some resort in a neighboring country. They, they, they was, to me, that was thought, wow, that doesn't sound very spiritual, right? But it was sure practical to give that, that couple a break and an opportunity to catch their breath and to spend some time alone together in the midst of the chaos of that country and, the, and their ministry. I thought, how practical. Churches pray for specific needs shared by missionaries to whom they are connected and rejoice in answered prayers. We just had that opportunity, that privilege this week, right? Praying for uh, the sea users down in Fiji when that category five cyclone was heading right towards them and we all began to pray and the Lord turned that thing and spared them. What a blessing, and what a blessing it was for them to know that that was a direct answer to our prayers and the prayers of all the churches that were praying for them. They provide housing and other material benefits to missionaries who are in the U.S. on stateside assignment. They also help stateside missionaries adjust as best they can during their season at home while also giving those missionaries the freedom to lovingly challenge the church to be even more intentional in their support for global missions. When Shannon Hurley comes and gets up behind this pulpit, we all kind of duck, right? We're like, okay, we're about to get hit hard. We're going to get challenged, right, about missions. But that's a good thing. We need to let them challenge us. Every missionary needs at least one rope-holding pastor who is leading a rope-holding church to support the global spread of the gospel. I don't know about you. I want to be a rope-holding pastor. I hope you want to be a rope-holding church. that we would have the privilege, the joy of sacrificially supporting the cause of missions and evangelism and church planting among all the peoples of the earth for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. Amen? And we're doing that. We get to do that in Uganda with the Hurleys and in Tanzania with the Vintons and with the Smiths in, uh, in, in India and in Russia. We support that local Pastor Vashislav Shefkanov. Just learning to pronounce his name was a, was a challenge, right? But now I can say it, and I'm excited, and I can't wait to meet the guy someday and call him by his first name and actually pronounce it right. In Fiji, China, 
Amsterdam. What a cool ministry that is that we're holding the ropes for the Bass family. And, and, and uh, he, uh, Eric is, is uh, teaching uh, people from all over Europe and all over Africa and, and who will be able to go back in and, and plant churches and pastor and, and preach the gospel. And what, what exciting, that's a big bang for your buck right there. Uh, to, to be able to impact lots of places through one check, if you will. Well, is this your heart? Do you share Paul's passion to spread the gospel, to build his church? Are you fully devoted and dedicated to spreading the good news, building the church? Can you honestly say that you are a man on a mission? You're a, a woman on a mission? You're a you're a student on a mission. You're a kid on a mission. Even you kids, you little kids, you can be on a mission for Christ. What is your ambition? What is your aim in life? The greatest, highest ambition is to help others come to know Christ and to grow in Christ. Father, we thank you for this good reminder and this section that would be very easy to just skim over because it doesn't sound as important as what we've already been studying in Romans, but boy, there's just some good practical application here for us. And so would you help us to be a a rope-holding church that finds great joy um, and purpose in in praying and giving and and going, uh, Lord, locally and globally, Lord, that we would... um, be used by you to help many come to know Christ and to grow in Christ. Even from the four walls of this church, Lord, we can make an impact around the world through more than anything, through our prayers. And so help us to, to, to learn to strive, to agonize in prayer for um, our own pastors, uh, our own children's ministry workers, our student ministry workers, those who serve in these vital areas of ministry, Lord, for lost people in our, in our community, Lord, for missionaries that we support around the world, for lost people in all those countries in which they serve. Lord, help us, Lord, to put into practice these truths, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.